Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, well, thank you for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's more of a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. A little background thrown in on the actors, some on the director, and if I'm doing my job right, perhaps you get a half amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, Please recommend this podcast to a friend. Give us a favorable review. This week, we are wrapping up this month's theme, Exploitation Much? That's our selection of some interesting exploitation films that really leave an impression on viewers. This week, we are covering 1987's Girls With Guns film, Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Join us! I have to tell you, I don't know too many things in this life. They're just some things that you can essentially take as natural law. As sure as the force of gravity affects the tides, as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow morning, these are things you can count on. For example, I'm gonna pay taxes until the day I die. Almost everything can be made immeasurably better with the addition of more cheese. That's an aphorism of my grandfather's that I have taken to heart. Anything that can be misunderstood will be misunderstood. And finally, Andy Sidaris is an unsung genius when it comes to making exploitation films. To be honest, the process is very straightforward. You have men who want to look at beautiful women in a gentleman's magazine. You have those same women starring in those magazines who state they want to act. And here they are, in their prime, best shape of their lives, and are used to being on camera, and they already have a built-in fan base for an audience. Oh, and if you think that part is completely sexist, let me flip it. The same logic is applied to men who want to be action stars, good-looking guys who are playing leads or second bananas on soap operas that want to step up and finally helm a movie, this is their chance. Sidaris used this logic to make people who wanted to be stars, stars. And in this case, all parties win. It's very assembly line. It's a way to mass produce a reliable and albeit cheesy film. While it's not 100% true, the joking rule of thumb when it comes to watching a Sidaris film is that every five minutes or so, somebody is either going to get into a fight, have a shootout, have a car chase, or when those other things aren't happening, they're just going to expose some skin. And that makes for near constant action, even if the plot's not going anywhere. But here's where Sidaris and his wife Arlene are so extremely proud of their films. The violence, while cartoony, is not gratuitous. Most of the films have no to little swearing, and while flesh is often bared, the sex scenes are edited to be shown for general R-rated features and themselves are quite chaste. 
making this and other films to be some of the dirtiest and most violent, clean films one could ever view. Truthfully, it is utterly silly and so toothless that it is made to be dismissed by anyone with half a brain as harmless fun. The type of late night deep cable fare that makes a 13 year old feel edgy and that's about it. That said, it is only the most uptight and prudish of pastor's wives who will clutch their pearls over this film. After all, this is America. Rampant wanton violence is to be celebrated, and yet suggestions of sex in the human body, while that will lead to the corruption of society, a lack of propriety in the youth, and God help us, people walking around without feeling a sense of shame. Of course, this thought line is the last retort of a cultural troglodyte, but what you gonna do? Andy Sidaris was born in Chicago, Illinois on February 20th, 1931, but he was raised in the South in Shreveport, Louisiana, and then for his college career, he was off to Texas to attend Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Andy grew up in a family that worshipped sports, so it was no surprise that when he was in college, he decided to launch his film career covering sports whenever he could. In 1950, he was locally covering games played in Dallas proper, and at the age of 19 when he graduated, he ended up being hired on for the local Dallas TV network to be their sports director. He would work on anything anyone would give him. By 1960, he was directing a local children's show, The Magic Land of Alakazam, and that's right when ABC Sports came calling and hired him to be the contract director for the increasing demand for filming professional football. And so began Sidaris's impact on American culture. In 1961, he directed the very first episode of ABC Presents The Wide World of Sports. He would spend almost the next three decades filming sporting events, totaling more than 500 football games, hundreds of basketball games, and a host of special one-off sporting events. Zadaris is credited for creating the now controversial in this woke culture, The Honey Shot. That's where a cameraman covering football would fill downtime by focusing on either cheerleaders or beautiful women in the crowd between breaks in the game action. Sidaris was quoted to have said, you know, once you've seen one huddle, you've seen them all. So you can either look at the popcorn, you can look at the guys, or you can look at the ladies. And the choice was always clear to me. Uh, I, I know that that's not a very woke attitude right now, but hey, put it in context, this was the 1960s. To say Sidaris was successful would be an understatement. He ended up starting his own production company. He ended up winning seven Emmys for his sports-related work, and that included his coverage of the 1968 Summer Olympics. But deep down for him, there was always a desire to venture into true filmmaking. So in 1969, he shot his first full-length feature, The Racing Scene, a documentary film about James Garner and his personal racing team. Sidaris found himself hooked. Sports would pay the bills, but filmmaking would be his passion. And like so many people who we've talked about, Sidaris went looking for more films to be made. And when you have a young, hungry director looking to make features, 
like a bad penny, Roger Corman always shows up. Teaming up, Sidaris and Corman each fronted $37,000 and shot the 1973 film Stacy, alternatively titled Stacy and Her Gangbusters, for the modest sum of $75,000. Considered to be an early entry into the Girls with Guns subgenre, it actually did quite well for both men. Starring former Playboy pinup Ann Randall, character Stacy Hansen is a race car driving private detective who is hired to first assist an old family friend with some matters of her estate, only to find herself drawn into solving a murder plot and uncovering a larger conspiracy that involves an evil cult. You know, that old story. Sidaris, with a follow-up feature in 1979, made the film Seven. That was a joint effort made with American International Pictures, and it starred the grizzled character actor William Smith in a rare leading role. And that follows the exploits of a team of seven hitmen working to eliminate members of an evil cartel. It's not Sidaris's best work by any stretch, but it's still a fun film that continues to work out the kinks of that expected formula he was trying to develop. Shootouts, chases, scantily clad, if at all clad, would you say cladless? Ladies, I've often enjoyed a scene where the assassin flies over and kills a target by way of hang glider, but to each their own. Again, bottom line for Sidaris is he makes money off the picture, and that paves the way for bigger and better things, such as his next picture, which is considered to be the first official, or at least of what would be known to be official, Sidaris Triple B Films. Now, in the spirit of nothing can be simple, some folks argue, purists such as myself, that the triple B films that Sidaris would make stand for bullets, bombs, and babes. Those of a more purient streak, triple B is lowered to being an acronym for bullets, bombs, boobs. To this I say, for shame. First off, have some pride. What are you, a sniggering 12-year-old? Second off, this is exploitation, so to further cheapen what is already supposed to be lowbrow is a disservice to the actors who ginned up the courage to be in the film in the first place. Besides, much like the noble Dakota people of the Great Plains who took care to use all parts of the buffalo they hunted, I say use all parts of the woman featured in the exploitation film as I would expect every viewer of the genre to do. It's just good form. By 1985, now confident and feeling comfortable in his own skin, Sidaris rolled into his next picture with far greater control and set the template that he would end up using for the next 12 films. Sidaris cannibalized his original script from Stacy and retooled it, keeping essentially the same plot 
but splitting facets of the Stacy persona into two separate characters. This time, a male lead private eye and his love interest together would essentially be working to solve the same sort of family inheritance squabble turned action murder mystery. Thus, Malibu Express starred former child actor Darby Hinton, whose real claim to fame at that point was playing Israel on the Fess Parker-led television adventure series Daniel Boone from the mid-1960s. This was the 28-year-old's shot to transition from TV actor to silver screen actor. And if nothing else, he would be a lead in a film where every woman essentially tries to or does seduce him. But Knowing where his bread was buttered, Sidaris loaded the film up with Playboy Playmates of the day. Kimberly MacArthur, Barbara Edwards, Lorraine Michaels, Linda Weissmister. Then again, and if you'll excuse the very poor pun, he doubled down with the inclusion of Sybil Danning. Sybil Danning had a solid run from the late 1970s to the early 1990s as a B-movie scream queen. The role she is most known for is in Roger Corman's Battle Beyond the Stars in 1978, where she so aptly plays a character that is the last of a line of Valkyrie warriors. And that's fitting, because that's exactly what Sybil Danning was. If lightning could strike a Frank Frazetta painting, it would be Sybil Danning that would walk off the canvas. Let's see. The best way I can describe her, both in being respectful and tasteful, is if ever a human body could be defined as cantilevered, Sybil's picture would be right there next to the definition. I discovered Sybil Danning at the tender age of four when my father sat me down to watch the canon-produced Lou Ferringo, Hercules, and then promptly left the room, leaving me to ogle, as my wife would say, Sybil and her Dannings. Again, great example of benign neglect, but in this case, thanks, Dad! Suffice to say, Malibu Express was a hit, a video store staple, and made all the more profitable by the fact that Sidaris had made the film himself with his production company. Universal Studios ended up distributing the film and put out the home video, but Sidaris owned the international and the cable rights, and thus when HBO and Showtime came calling, they would end up playing Sidaris' features on a regular late night loop. Cha-ching. So now, with a proven template that worked, he set out to make this week's feature, Hard Ticket to Hawaii. But it wasn't quite as simple as Sidaris initially thought it was going to be. In a 2006 interview, Sidaris himself recalled that the hardest thing about shooting Hard Ticket to Hawaii was the fact that his wife was on set, as she was involved in helping him run the Sidaris Film Company. What had changed is, previously, Arlene Sidaris was a successful executive producer who had helped her husband run their joint company when they all worked for ABC. Now that they were working jointly, making films for themselves, they were the bosses, and they would publicly argue over how they felt they should accomplish things for the picture, which Sidaris regretted in retrospect and cited as being embarrassing, especially for his actors, who would be just standing around waiting awkwardly while the married director-producer team would be arguing about how to shoot something versus what they had actually budgeted for. Still, 
He looked back on their professional relationship favorably, acknowledging that as time went on and they got past their professional differences, they forged a very strong business partnership that equally complemented their personal relationship. But hey, you've been ever so good. Why don't we just get to the trailer of this film? Hard ticket to Hawaii. It has it all. The awesome, pristine beauty of the land. The warm caress of perfect beaches. The tantalizing wetness of the blue Pacific. Hawaii. It's a great place to visit. But you wouldn't want to die there. Four of America's finest ready and willing to pay the price for paradise. They're undercover, but not under-equipped. On this mission, there's hard flying, hard playing, hard fighting. Agents are everywhere. Have no mercy. Kill them all. Ticket to Hawaii. Two Molokai sheriff's deputies are executed violently when they stumble upon a large scale drug operation kicking off our film. During a montage of credits and cargo being loaded, we see a crate with a warning of caution, live snake, get damaged hinting that the occupant will be easily able to escape its confines. We're then introduced to special agency, I don't exactly know what agency it is, operative Donna, as played by Donna Spear, as well as the civilian witness turned agency agent, Taryn, as played by Hope Marie Carlton. Their cover is currently acting as pilots for a cargo company, shuttling tourists between the islands and delivering cargo runs for various companies on the island proper, all while keeping an eye out for various villainous drug activities going on around them. Hi, You sure are. You got one set of honeymooners, booked the Halawa Valley, and one snake. A snake? Dixon, I don't like snakes. Besides, there's never been a snake on the island. Oh, there is now. Actually, it's just for display at the Molokai Ranch Wildlife Park. Oh, make sure they get this book on the care and feeding of it. Will do. Thanks, Dixon. We'll see you soon. Have Bye, sweetie. Damn it, this is a snake for the wildlife park. Bruce, Derek, did you guys load a crate with a snake in it marked contaminated on the Molokai cargo plane? No, we didn't, boss. We loaded a box that just said live snake. Live snake? Yeah. What's the matter with you guys? The sun baked your brains? Now I gotta get on the radio and get that plane back here. That snake they have is dangerous. It's contaminated. Live snake. 
Honolulu calling, November 9 or 9 or 786. Do you read me? Come in, please. Come on, girls, be there. Snake, you got the killer. This is Honolulu calling, November 9 or 9 or 786. Do you read me? Come in, please. This is Honolulu calling, November 9 or 9 or 786. Do you read me? Come in, please. Come in, please. So you know that snake has to show up in the story again after it's discovered it is ultra dangerous. And being swapped in the hangar, the girls take a different crate that's accidentally been mismarked as having the snake in it instead of the real and dangerous animal. The gals end up dropping off a couple on their honeymoon and plan on picking them up in a few days from Molokai. Then, inexplicably, on their way back, they encounter some drug-running hoodlums. Of course, they decide to ruminate on their problems the way all rational people do. Taryn, we need to figure out what just happened. Let's unload and hit the jacuzzi. I do my best thinking there. Right, I'll get the dolly. Ah, oh, this thing weighs a ton. Yeah, this is heavy, all right. Gosh. Heavy, huh? Really? Well, here's the Karen feeding manual. Huh. All snakes eat meat. They swallow animals whole, often larger than themselves. Many snakes simply grab their victims and swallow them alive. Others kill their prey first. Some snakes eat only once every few weeks. Well, I sure hope this one is not hungry, really. After we put away the crate, let's see what's in the box we found. Here we go, Donna. Let's see what's in here. Diamonds! These must be worth a fortune. No wonder they tried to kill us. We are in big trouble. You think they know who we are? How many women fly around Molokai in a cargo plane? One, Kimasabi. I'm getting out of here. Where do you think you're going where there's not a contract out on your life? So what are we going to do? First steps report to Rowdy. Yeah. And we need to call the park and have them pick up that snake. Right. Let's go. The villains regroup and learn that their problems lie with the Molokai Cargo Company, blaming the girls on interrupting their shipment. The ladies discover that the box they thought they were transporting has been swapped, and instead there's a box of diamonds inside their cargo. They realize this is the real reason that they've been running afoul of these drug goons. So, the ladies are singled out for an attack to get the diamonds back, and in the struggle, that snake who we also learn has been fed cancerous radioactive rats, is now out and loose on the island. The ladies are able to turn the tables on their attackers when the snake ends up spooking the lead boss, which allows Donna to end up wounding him in the face. They go to their contact, Edie's, who runs a local restaurant bar, where they tell her that they've identified the man that Donna shot. He's Seth Romero, local drug lord. 
Donna ends up calling in her boyfriend and fellow agent Rowdy Abilene, as played by Ron Moss, for backup, and he arrives with his partner Jade, as played by Harold Diamond. Taryn takes this opportunity in the break from the action to have a romantic interlude on the beach with her man, Jimmy John Jackson, as played by Wolf Larson. Rowdy and Jade arrive to the island, and Seth has already gotten wind that they're there to put a stop to his drug trade. An assassin makes an attempt to murder them, going past them on a skateboard while holding a rifle and an inflatable sex doll? Yeah, you, you heard me correctly. He does manage to whiz by and both wooed Jane and blow a hole in the back of Rowdy's jeep. Rowdy responds with the sort of calm, collected, trained response that all law enforcement agents are known for. Here's the gun, Skater. Blow him away. No problem, baby. Look out, he's got a gun. Jade, how bad you hit? I've been better, but I'll live. Let's get that turkey. I can hit a moving target with. Meanwhile, and might I add, nonsensically, that young couple who got dropped off on another part of the island, they get attacked by the large, radioactive, cancer-causing, poisonous boa constrictor. We then jump to Edie's, where we see that not only is the bartender in cahoots with the drug lord, recording all the phone calls that Edie makes to the agency, but we learn that Michelle is actually Michael. And although it's not clear if he is a transvestite or if he's just a guy going deep, deep, deep undercover for counter-espionage against the agency, doesn't make sense. Either way, Michael and Seth's thugs grab Edie before she can rendezvous with Rowdy and give him intel. While all of this is going down, the girls end up doing some recon on Seth's compound, noting that one of the guards, who is protecting the beach side of the property, really seems to enjoy flirting with and throwing frisbees with the locals. It's here that the girls spot the kidnapped Edie being dragged into the compound. The ladies end up finding the bodies of the vacationing couple, and from the couple's camera they find pictures of the snake attacking them. All of the agents finally meet up at the girls' place, where they discuss the problem of the snake being so poisonous it'll end up being dead in 36 hours based on its own toxicity. So, of course, you're now setting it up that the snake has to come back to the house. Just cuz. Well, the health department hasn't found the snake yet, but according to their calculations, the snake's own toxins will kill it within the next 36 hours. Well, at least that's one problem someone else can handle. Donna and Rowdy get some canoodling time in, while Jade and Taryn bond over drinking vodka and prepping guns together. Seth is busy trying to keep his boss, Mr. Chang, happy, prepping drug shipments for delivery, you know, generic bad guy stuff. 
At dawn, Rowdy shows up on the beach and tags along with a local frisbee gal, on her way to have her usual morning throw with the guard in the shades. Rowdy ends up scaring her off and violently incapacitates the guard. Note, this is a lot of setup for something that isn't all that quiet or even subtle. Donna arrives by ultralight, and Taryn and Jade show up in a jeep, and they all proceed to drop grenades and shoot their way into the compound. Shootouts and a lot of needless chop sake action ensues, but they do find Edie and rescue her. Then they all head home, that is, until Taryn asks the very pointed question of, Hey, who got Seth? causing Rowdy to jump back on a bike and head back to the compound. Donna goes home in the ultralight, cleans up, only to have Seth waiting for her in her house, attacking her with a switchblade, demanding his diamonds back. Donna shoots him with a harpoon gun and leaves him for dead, only to have Seth rise again and attack her. They tussle a bit longer, and Donna ends up stabbing him with his own knife. She retreats to the bathroom to clean up and tend to her injuries, but that's when the giant cancer snake shoots out of the toilet. Donna ends up running out of the room and closes the door behind her. Seth rises one last time and stumbles to the bathroom, not knowing Donna's not in it. He flings open the door, only to be struck multiple times in the face by an enraged giant serpent. Donna grabs a gun and fires at the snake multiple times, but it seems unaffected by her bullets. So it's up to Rowdy, who crashes through the wall, and shoots the snake point-blank range with that rocket launcher he carries. Somebody was actually paid to write the following line. Where the hell did that snake come from? Did you believe up through the toilet? The film ends with Rowdy and Donna going to Mr. Chang's private office, literally beating his bodyguard to death in front of him before offering to take him in. Note, this is the first time anyone in this film has ever actually threatened to legally arrest someone. It's often just been immediate execution. <laughs> Mr. Chang declines, nonsensically attacking them with a samurai sword, until our heroes shoot him out of his office window, allowing him to fall to his death, screaming to the street below. The whole gang reunites on the Malibu Express yacht, which Rowdy has borrowed from his cousin Cody, and they go on to toast and claim that they're all going to go on vacation to celebrate and relax with some R&R, Taryn makes the logical argument that as a civilian and not a full agent, she feels she's going to keep the diamonds and then share them with her friends. So the agency is not going to compel its main agents to actually turn the contraband in. They all toast, happily ripping off the federal government and becoming wealthy off of blood diamonds they stole from criminals. Roll credits. Where to even begin? Well, for starters, let's talk about the snake. What a fabulously absurd use of trying and failing to make a Chekhov's gun motif here. 
The agents are trying to do their due diligence to battle the cartel, and in the background, there's this omnipresent threat of a giant crazed serpent. Now, the snake is done in a practical way, with a very crazy looking puppet, and while no one would mistake it for being real, it actually complements the very zany nature of this story. When we see it in the beginning, and then it just keeps coming back and showing up in weird ways until it finally menaces and attacks some of the remaining villains and heroes, and of course, it winds up being destroyed by Rowdy in an over-the-top explosion. Now that being said, let's dovetail into that next concept. Rowdy is such a bad shot with a regular gun, he has to instead settle most of his problems with a rocket launcher? Which is A, not exactly a surgical instrument, and B, not a weapon anyone should use indoors, much less a few feet away from oneself. At one point, he most likely would have blown himself up just by sheer firing it at a target three feet in front of his face. Now, this may shock you, but the agency is not a very well thought out organization. So, while they're just hanging out and using the cover of Molokai Cargo as a front to mask their watching of the cartel, they aren't really looking to arrest any bad guys in the end. You know, they're up to no good, they're just hanging around watching them run drugs. And with this subplot involving the diamonds, it apparently just gives them carte blanche to start going off and killing the bad guys rather than arrest them? Doesn't make any sense. It's no shock that this film has a huge cult following. I've had conversations with strangers who quickly turned into friends over this film. Which is, of course, always nice when you can interact with a fellow lover of good, bad movies. I play Xbox Live, and in my playing of online games, I ended up getting into a discussion with a chap who turned out to be a Californian deputy district attorney, who, chuckling, shared with me a story about his trials and tribulations in attempting to stealthily tape this film off of HBO after his parents had gone to bed, and then figure out a way to retrieve the tape before they would be any the wiser. Happy to report he was successful, at least at first. Weeks later, in his hubris, they did finally catch on after he accidentally left the tape in the living room VCR. He had to face the music and was indeed discovered. But ah, the follies of youth. Well, clearly, I like this film, other people like this film, but not everybody thinks the same way about movies. And that's alright, because that's exactly why we have such things like the sidecar. So again, joining us this week in the sidecar is our stalwart contributor. That would be the Velocipeter himself, host of the Velocip podcast, monologist, raconteur, and a man who also has some feelings about this film, particularly one specific scene. So what do you have for us today, Peter? If you have spent any time on the internet, you probably actually know the clip I'm going to be talking about. It is relatively infamous because it has a man throw a frisbee at another man in slow motion. The frisbee 
has razor blades all on the outside, which then cut through the catcher's fingers, and it goes into his throat, thus ending a human life. What I'd actually like to talk about is the premise that got us to this famous internet clip. You see, the situation is that there needs to be a beach assault. And this is a conversation that ensues the night before. Who's the girl? She's a local. She plays frisbee with this guy every day. Mm, good. I can use that. What? I can use what? That the guard enjoys a rousing match of frisbee? You can use that? This is the level of strategy we're going to? We're going to take the linchpin of our whole plan and base it on the fact that a man enjoys a rousing back and forth of the exciting frisbee disc. The goal here is to infiltrate the beach, get past the guard without him having an opportunity to alert backup, which probably doesn't exist because we've only seen about four actual bad guys in the bad guy gang in this film so far. So the plan has been laid in motion. They're going to take out the guard before he can call for backup, and then they will all rush in together, assault the enemy's stronghold, saving their friend, and thus ending this criminal empire. And we get introduced to a phrase which I don't believe was actually ever used as often as it is used in this next scene. Hey, Colleen, who's that turkey with you? He's just a thrower. Sorry, Buster. We ain't allowed here. Take off. Hey, lighten up. We're just throwing. Oh, yeah? Let's see you throw one. That's right. They are throwing. And the throwing, again, is really important because it is the crux of their stealthy entry to the stronghold. And to give you a sense, since this is audio, you didn't get to see the scene that just played out. But he threw the frisbee directly at the guy. The guy caught it, threw it up under one leg, caught it again and threw it back. It was very exciting. You don't look so hot to me. Oh yeah? She didn't catch this. So while Shades puts down his Uzi and takes off his headset, our hero chases away the girl he ran up the beach with so he can have a serious throw-in showdown against Shades the guard. Again, to give you some context, see if you can catch this is followed up by Shades throwing the frisbee directly to our hero. It was not a difficult thing to catch. If he didn't try, it probably would have hit him in the chest. Hey! Let's have it. Tragic final words for Shades, as our hero swaps out the black frisbee for the other black frisbee he had prepared with razor blades, which leads us to the infamous scene I mentioned at the beginning of this clip. Then, once Shades has been disposed of, an ultralight flies over the beach, and a jeep comes racing along. Our hero jumps into the jeep, and they go up to the house. The problem I have with this premise is they wanted to take out Shades quietly, and then they quite loudly, in an ultralight and a jeep, drive straight up to the house. So it becomes very clear that really only one thing needed to happen. And that would be for them to get rid of Shades quickly before he can call for backup. Because they're going to make a ton of noise when they're going up the beach anyways. So noise suddenly wasn't an issue. This was not a stealth mission. What they really needed to do was get Shades out of the picture quickly. This could have been accomplished by one of the several guns he was carrying after he used the frisbee. I'm willing to accept a lot of B-movie premises. You can use magic as long as you say magic exists. 
you can do a lot of strange things as long as you give me a real reason for it. The problem with Hard Ticket to Hawaii and this scene is that someone had the idea to use a razor blade frisbee and they worked it into the movie and didn't bother continuing with the premise for 30 more seconds. As long as the team did not show up in noisy vehicles, they could have pretended they stayed stealthy all the way up to the house. But because they barrel in in a Jeep and a small fixed-wing airplane that has an open engine, clearly stealth was not part of it at all. I don't have great expectations for these things. I do not hold movies to very high standards. Basically, if I couldn't do better, I don't complain about it. But even I could carry on a premise like this for 30 more seconds and have the four-member hero team sneak up into the house to begin their final assault. If nothing else, you should at least now treat yourself. Go onto the internet and search for Frisbee Death. And I can promise you the very first thing that comes up is this scene from Hard Ticket to Hawaii. And if we could do anything through the power of this podcast, would be to get that in the year 2020 trending again. So get out there and do a little throw-in, you turkey. This is for the Molokai cops. That was fantastic. Peter picked a great scene to discuss, and as soon as I had heard it, I knew I was going to have to leave out details so it would be even more impactful because he is spot on. Peter, that was an excellent, excellent breakdown. Nice job, as always. So, there actually was going to be a direct sequel to this film. In the early 2000s, after securing a deal with Spike TV to show all 12 of the Triple B features, Sidaris gave a 2006 interview where he excitedly stated that he and his wife were in the process of putting together Battlezone Hawaii. That would again feature playmates, penthouse pets, car chases, shootouts, explosions, handsome dudes who specifically can't shoot straight, and of course, we would learn that the radioactive, cancerous, stupendously poisonous python from the first film had laid eggs right before its death. And due to all its abnormalities, it's hinted that there would now be a bigger, meaner, more ruthless snake coming for our heroes in this next film. Sounds actually like it'd be a lot of fun. But, to everyone's chagrin, Andy Sidaris passed away from throat cancer in 2007, ending his run as the king of Triple B films. Arlene Sidaris still survives to steer the company to this day and manages the AndySidaris.com website, but it's a shame. It would have been fun to have a sequel to a truly goofy film. version of Hard Ticket to Hawaii we screened here was part of the so tastefully named 2011 DVD box set Girls, Guns, and G-Strings, the Andy Sidaris Collection, which is the 12-film set of his Triple B features. Uh, it can still be found on Amazon.com, and if you are a high-stakes roller like me, this entire set can be yours for the going rate of $7.16 brand spanking new. But that was the old release. Hard Ticket to Hawaii has since gotten a new cleaned up 4K transfer as of April of 2019, and it's made its debut on Blu-ray. And while not cheap, it can be had for a very reasonable $9.87. 
and for that kind of cash, you get a new HD restoration of the film. Really, really get in there and see how fake that snake looks, as well as a widescreen version of the film and some new special features, including a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the film and interviews with director Andy Sedaris himself. Now remember folks, we don't get anything here for telling you that you should purchase films from anybody. We just think it's important to continue to keep supporting physical media so these great companies who own the rights will continue to release the content that we all know and love. And besides, at the end of the day, isn't that what this is all about? Seeing the things we love? And even that, Hard Ticket to Hawaii is often touted as being the best of the worst, the king of B-films. So what have you got to lose? Go on, give it a try. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you for joining us. This concludes our month-long coverage of exploitation films, and March is going to see us start a whole new concept theme, A Simple Carpenter. That's going to be our month-long look at the works of director John Carpenter. So we hope to have you come back and join us then. I'd like to again extend a special thank you to our sidecar guest, the Velocipeter himself, Mr. Peter Martin, for joining us here today. If you've enjoyed his breakdown, and why wouldn't you, you can absolutely find him speaking on a host of other topics, either on his show Ninja News Japan or on the Velocip podcast itself. So please, get out there, support our friends, give him a like and review if you please. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to have even a more personal interaction or wish to contribute to a segment on the sidecar, please send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. Also, we're featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast platform database that listeners and creators of podcasts alike can use. So check us out there. Give us a review. All things help. So until next time, take care out there, everybody. And remember... Life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy, all.